We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm with I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. And with me today, special co-host, Robbie Martin. Robbie's a longtime journalist and filmmaker. He writes for the magazine White Fungus and Oakland-based news website Media Roots, founded by his sister, Abby Martin, who he co-hosts a regular podcast with. He's behind the documentaries American Biscuit, American Anthrax, and A Very Heavy Agenda. Robbie has made appearances on Buzzsaw TV, KPFA's Project Censored, Russia Today, The Corporate Report, Behind the Headlines of Free Speech TV, Cindy Sheehan's Soapbox Radio, has been interviewed by the BBC, Neutral Magazine, and San Francisco Chronicle. Robbie, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Adam. I just realized, too, something I, I forgot all those uh, places I went on. One of them is kind of funny to me now because uh, Sean Stone, Oliver Stone's son, uh, was one of the hosts of Buzzsaw. And he's out there now, like hanging out with Rudy Giuliani and posting pictures on Instagram, smoking cigars with him and talking about how he's a great guy. So oh, I just thought no. that kind oh. of interesting to see how some of these sort of older school, deep politics, 9-11 people have kind of moved on to what they're doing now. You know? Exactly. Well, let me ask you, what started you down the road of activism and the personal investment of U.S. foreign policy overall? Um. I think it probably, I mean, it really probably started with 9-11, I think, because, I mean, I happened to be, uh, my girlfriend at the time was, uh, she wasn't a U.S. citizen. She was, um, she had a student visa. She was a Japanese citizen. And I remember it was sort of like, she shattered the default frame that I think that I would have had, had she not been there that morning on 9-11. She just happened to be staying at my house that morning and she was only like, you know, we would only see each other maybe like once every other week. So it just happened to be that day she was there. And I remember she started, she was sobbing like after, you know, the first tower was on fire or whatever. And I was sort of like trying to console her. And then I just started to talk to her. I was like, yeah, it's really sad. Like who, how knows, you know, who knows how many people are dead. Hmm. And, kind of sentiment and she was like no i'm i'm america is gonna do something really bad like that was her that was what her sadness was coming from that she knew that the retaliation was going to be so much worse than whatever we had just seen that she was just like crying over that and i was like and and that i think that just sort of shook me out of whatever that default frame would have been as just like a young dumb american i was you know i was like 19 or 20 at the time and it was just, I think her saying that really made me realize 
wow, like, yeah, this is horrible what happened to us, but what we're about to do is going to change history forever and is going to be really, really evil. Like, no matter what it is, no matter how much they sugarcoat it, America is going to basically, you know, Jack Palance pick up the gun. This is, it's going to be the old West. And I, and I remember I, you know, I had memories of being like scared of the Gulf war when I was a kid and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm more grown up now, but I'm scared of us going like whatever this war on terror thing is. It's scary. I don't want us to do this. I don't even understand why we're doing this when, you know, there wasn't even, they didn't even bother to like make a really good case for why they said bin Laden was behind this. It was just like, the train was moving super fast out of the station, unstoppable train. And it was like, you get on board this train. You don't really ask too many questions. You know, George Bush basically said, you're either with us or with the terrorists. And all that stuff was really, I think that mentality really scared me at the time. And I I think by the combination of, you know, being uh, in a relationship with someone who already sort of had an anti-US foreign policy point of view, Although she kind of hid it from me, she didn't really tell me that. Like I didn't really know her politics in this way until 9/11. It was, it was kind of a crash course for me, um, and I think it was just that mentality. It was sort of like that pressure. You must comply with this mentality of we need to do. We need to get revenge. We need to attack Afghanistan, and I and from the very beginning, I was very against that. And I didn't really have, you know, the education, Adam. I didn't have like the history of Afghanistan or the Mujahideen. So it was more just like a gut reaction. Like I, this is not right. This doesn't feel right. It wasn't like an educated or informed resistance, but you know, that sort of, that was the start of it. And that's, I think what, how it evolved over time. And then I just, you know, would inform myself and, you know, of course, over the decades, I was like, oh yeah, I was right back then. I just didn't know the reasons why I just, you know, my feeling was correct. But now that I have the information, I know that that feeling was informed by, you know, it's there for a reason. It's it's a warning almost. It's like America has this is like a karmic time bomb almost. It's like all these horrible things we've done just keep piling and piling up. And, you know, I think I had some understanding of of just that general concept as a as a young man without understanding it fully. You spoke about the fear of the uh, reaction of the American military. Was that fear justified or was it worse? The react the reaction of the military, was it worse than you expected initially? I think, you know, I selfishly was a little bit, I was, I, I think part of me too was a little bit afraid of more attacks. Like, like if we do these things in these other countries, they're, we're going to, it's, they're going to attack us. Right. So right. It would precipitate more. It would precipitate more attacks. Yeah, it was more, it was, that was part of it. It was like a selfish, like America, I, I don't want to be hurt. You know, it's like, oh my God, like now, like we're opening ourselves up to like basically getting attacked more. But then the other part of it was, yeah, it's like the scariness of, I think that it was worse, Adam, than I thought it was going to be because I did initially stupidly think it was just going to be Afghanistan. And I thought that that was just going to be, you know, as horrible as that was, it was going to be sort of a one and done. We'd kill bin Laden and we'd kill, you know, a bunch of people in the Middle East in that way. And then we'd get out of there. I, yeah, it was way worse than I imagined. I, I didn't have, that was one thing I think I was naive about is I didn't realize sort of the imperial foresight and the, you know, like the, the, how badly they wanted to lock in this, you know, basically Middle East, you know, imperial footprint. I didn't, I didn't have that understanding. So it, it was worse and scarier 
the well, this will lead right into the questions I have for you now. Um, in your film, a heavy, very agenda, you spoke at length about the neoconservative movement, and you spoke of focus on the Kagan family. And of course, he's the co-author of the project, The New American Century, Robert Kagan. What, what made you focus on Kagan specifically? Hmm. Well, I think that movie was, if I really boil it all down, it, it, it was, it started as a personal mission for me because I felt that my sister, Abby Martin, had sort of put herself out there and, you know, taken sort of a, a stance against sort of the editorial line at RT and then the mainstream media, you know, confused that for being anti-Russian and then they, and then they lifted her up for a second. And then once they found out that she had certain views on 9-11 and other things, they sort of tried to crush her. And one of the people who was leading that charge was, um, was in this neoconservative uh, guy from, he was writing for the daily beast at the time named Jamie Kerchick. And when I, when I realized what was happening, when I realized there was like basically a smear campaign that had been sort of put into motion to ruin my sister's reputation, it was really fascinating to me that the people leading the charge of it were like project for the new American century associated people. And I kind of got into my head, you know, well, I'm a nine 11 guy. Like I, you know, I hate these neocons. They're, they're pretty much to me, some of the most evil people on the planet. So I take this as a sign of war. Like if they're going to, if these people are going to wage war against my sister, then I'm going to wage war against them. And when I, when I had that in my mind, I didn't really know what that meant at first. I thought I was just going to be like, I'm going to ruin Jamie Kerchick or, you know, like as I kind of out of revenge. But what I found was I went back into, you know, I just started like watching old PNAC videos. And, and then I eventually discovered that PNAC had sort of rebranded, reopened as the foreign policy initiative. So I was just literally staying up, you know, going, falling asleep to these three hour long C-SPAN videos that to a normal person would probably be like an insane thing to do to fall asleep to like neocons talking about, you know, what, what, whatever. Um, but what I, what happened to Adam was eventually uh, Robert Kagan came on one of those videos. And as I was falling asleep one night, I'm like, this sounds really different than other neocon. Like this sound, some of this almost sounds right. Like I'm almost agreeing with some of the things he's saying, but then like, I'm realizing, oh no, but he's cleverly sort of nesting these talking points inside of a larger neocon frame, but he's doing it in a way that is in, I could see how his rhetoric would be very enticing to a liberal or neoliberal person. And I remember being really struck by that. So I, I started reading about him specifically. Like I kind of got my focus away from Kerchick and Bill Kristol and looking at him specifically. And then I found out that Obama, you know, was carrying around his book, uh, The World of America Made. I, th I think it was like right before the inauguration, people had photographed Obama carrying around Robert Kagan's book. Um, so I was like, wow, this is really interesting that this this neocon sort of has any influence over Obama. I didn't realize this. I knew Obama was a hawk. I just didn't realize who, you know, necessarily was putting these ideas in his mind. Um, and then I, I sort of, you know, started doing a little research on him and I was like, wow, this, his whole family uh, is plugged into this military industrial complex and in really interesting, influential ways that I just had no idea about. I mean, his wife, Victoria Newland, 
of course, NATO ambassador. She was the NATO ambassador when NATO basically expanded twofold in the 90s. I mean, most people don't even realize that we took in like, I think like seven NATO countries in the 1990s. I mean, in, in, after the Soviet Union fell, it's like, you know, the whole thing is just crazy when you really unpack it all. Fred Kagan, his brother, is the guy who, you know, came up with the the Iraq war surge. Um, he seems like some kind of autistic math, mathematician genius. He can read, write, and speak fluent Russian. Uh, he's an expert in Soviet military history. Probably knows more about Soviet military history than most Soviet military generals do. I mean, this is the, this is the kind of weird people they are. And the father of this family, Donald Kagan, is one of the most influential war historians in the United States and in the West. So he's sort of Peloponnesian War, Greek history, ancient war history teachings have sort of shaped the fundamental understanding of warfare in a large way. Even military strategists look back to his writings on the Peloponnesian War as this sort of, you know, teachable moment. Um, and his philosophy, you know, Donald Kagan, the, the patriarch of the family, his philosophy is war is and like war has happened all throughout society. It's always happening. It never stops. So to think that we can stop war is just some naive pipe dream. Like it's always like that is the normal state of the world. So you're basically just a dumbass for thinking you're going to stop wars. You know, so war, you know, war basically is messages that that's normal and that's essentially fine because that's the way the world is. Um, so I think altogether, and of course, one, I need to mention one more person, Kimberly Kagan. Uh, she runs uh, what arguably is the most influential, um, singularly focused war think tank out of D.C. called the Institute for the Study of War. So when you combine this whole family together, they have an enormous influence over the way that people in D.C. think about foreign policy. And they're almost completely obscure. And so that's, you know, that wasn't my initial reason for going after Robert Kagan. But in the end, uh, it feels like it was the right thing to do because i mean you know exposing someone who has that much influence i think is uh, important um because no one you know no one previously really knew anything about him and i think uh it's sort of stand you know and then pulling out that stuff about his father and brother saying they wanted to invade palestine as a response to 9-11 i mean that i was you know pleased that i was able to find that at the very least like going after him because i don't think that would have been you know, discovered other way. I mean, maybe someone else would have found that, but I'll give myself credit for finding that. <laughs> it's, in, it's interesting enough because Robert Kagan, his ideology about foreign policy vastly differed even from Colin Powell. For example, in 2000, Robert Kagan sought to explain core differences between the positions of the neoconservatives and those of Colin Powell, in which Kagan said, the problem with Powell is his political and strategic judgment. He doesn't believe the United States should enter conflicts without strong public support, but he also doesn't believe that the public will support anything. That kind of iron logic rules out almost every conceivable post-Cold War intervention. What, what are your thoughts about what he said? I mean, it's amazing because, I mean, he's, he's a good rhetorician or whatever you want to call it. I mean, like that's a, it sounds right in a, in a, in a, mm you know, way like, oh yeah, like Colin Powell, like what's he thinking? He's great. I mean, it's weird because he actually had a similar conversation with me in person. I, I secretly recorded Robert Kagan and I asked him, why do you think Obama is dragging his feet 
on sending the $300 million to Ukraine for offensive weapons. You know, this was, I thought this was something that he was supposed to do. And Robert Kagan's like, well, you know, he, he told me personally, he didn't want nuclear war with Russia. And well, if that's your, you know, if that's your, your, um, your frame going into it, if you don't want nuclear war, then okay, I guess fine. But you know, like it will, so what would be your, uh, what would be okay to, uh, go to war with Russia if they invade Germany, if they invade, he named all these countries and he went down this list. And it reminds me of what he says about Colin Powell, because it's like, he's very into this idea of like, yeah, the U S should be able to wage a war whenever it wants, regardless of, uh, you know, popular support. And I just, I mean, that whole concept is fascinating because it's like, on one hand, I could see that being a really enticing point of view to any, you know, military general, it's like, well, yeah, like that America needs to do what it needs to do, regardless of what these idiot, you know, people in the public think we should do. They have no idea what's, you know, they don't have the intelligence we have. They don't have the satellite images we have. So it's an enticing view to sort of get them to believe in. Um, but then it also implies that, I think it's sort of blanketly implying that anybody who has a more conservative view of, you know, being careful about doing this is basically a pussy. It's almost kind of what he's saying. And mm -hmm. I think it, maybe I'm wrong in terming it that way, but I think it, that's really the subtext of what he's saying. I mean, it's like, it's kind of, a, you know, it's kind of a wimp. We're America. We do what we want when we need to do it. And that's the way we need to do it, essentially. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's your take on it, but. No, I, I agree with this because that's the neoconservative mindset is to be aggressive. And that leads to perfectly to the next question about um, during the Reagan era, we saw the Leo Strauss, Neonite, Paul Wolfowitz, and others like Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Richard Pearl, start to turn from the Cold War to the Middle East. Was the Afghan-Soviet war the turning point towards a more concentrated effort in controlling the Middle East by using radical fundamentalism as the pretext to destabilizing the region? Yeah, I, I mean, it could be. I think I probably need to, I mean, I I could definitely be better, better educated on uh, 80s Reagan foreign policy excursions, but it definitely seems like that was the era in general in which that became sort of the modus operandi of, of what we were doing. Um, but I mean, in terms of the, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, you know, I, I don't really know the answer to that question. I guess for me, I, I mostly go back to the Taliban um, during the Clinton era for some reason. But I know, I mean, I know that what you're, the question you're asking is about, did, is this when our sort of foreign policy pivot really changed? And I would say, I, that's what you're asking, right? I would say, right, yeah. yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Would the, would, would I, would, how about this? Would, would, uh, how much of an influence, uh, say, the Israeli lobby have on U.S. foreign policy as well as the Arab lobby? Would it be, is that due to the influence of the neoconservatives in general? You know, I, I go back and forth on this a lot. I think that I would say that the Israeli lobby as it exists today it sort of acts well in terms of the foreign policy lobbying they do 
it sort of acts as an apparatus that plugs into other apparatuses and it's designed to. So I think on its own, just influencing politicians, it wouldn't really be achieving very much. I think that it's it, it almost has to be able to have this sort of symbiotic um, feedback loops sort of thing going with neocons and these other sort of foreign policy think tanks that act like they're not pro-Israel or they're not you know pro-Israel on the surface. I mean, one of the most blatant ones is probably the foundation for defensive democracies, but a lot of these other think tanks are by default also pro-Israel. So, you know, even the ones that maybe are not openly Zionist acting, they still, you know, the people from those Israeli lobbies still plug into their system and so forth. So I think that it's, a. I, I guess I see a little bit more of like a, it's like the Israeli lobby is like a Lego piece of some kind that plugs into this larger structure. Um, and in terms of the Arab lobby, you know, I don't really know, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge about it i mean i'm probably more know more about it from the way that the right tries to um say that there's secret muslim uh infiltration into like various u.s sectors of government you know like the whole muslim brotherhood thing that sort of took over a, a lot of uh dialogue on the right i know more about that so i don't in general know i mean i know about like a lot of saudi money you know and and into our financial system but in terms of like the actual lobby i'm pretty uh, ignorant about it, to be honest. Well, you would you would be right on the money because uh, the the Arab lobby is basically made up of lawyers and corporations that are affiliated with Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah. And now, and by the way, Arab, I don't blame you here because when I read the book Arab Lobby by Dr. Mitchell Bard, it was the only book that actually talked about the Arab lobby in general. It just seems that they're, they're very uh, in the shadows, so to speak. Whereas APAC is right in your face, and they, yeah. they hold these conferences every year and. It's just like they don't care because they know that the influence that they have can't be dissuaded. And I think that's basically all regarding this huge evangelical population that's within uh, our areas of government. Um, in, in my, well, to follow on the next question would be like, you mentioned this in a heavy agenda when you talk about the neocons, um, about the Office of Special Plans and Paul Wolfowitz and Douglas fight, which was to supply George Bush with raw, unvetted intelligence pertaining to Iraq. Um, how much of an influence did these people have on, on the war with Iraq? Oh, I mean, I think Paul Wolfowitz uh, had an enormous amount of influence. Douglas Feist, I I'm less familiar with. I mean, I know that he had an enormous amount of influence too, but you know, I was just talking with my sister about this after Colin Powell died. And it's like, we're still in this totally bullshit, whitewashed frame of Colin Powell regrets basing yeah. his speech off of faulty intelligence. And it's like, first of all, he knew exactly what the White House and the Office of Special Planning was doing at the time. And literally what they were doing was, at best, they were cherry picking intelligence on purpose to create a false narrative, which isn't of itself, a, that's a form of a lie. If you're only showing like one twentieth of a, some kind of intelligence information, but you're not showing all the other things that contradict it, which they later admitted were omitted mm. on purpose, then that's lying. So it's not faulty intelligence. It's not like the intelligence they use was, you know, I, so I guess what I'm saying is this whole idea of, you know, Colin Powell really, I think brings this into focus. It's like, 
Paul Wolfowitz, Dick Cheney's office. Um, there's a video clip in a very heavy agenda where Eric Edelman, who was part of Dick Cheney's office at the time, is basically being grilled by Dennis Kucinich. And it's one of the only times I've seen one of these neocons actually being specifically asked about what you just said, not the Office of Special Planning, but the idea of how they constructed this intelligence. And he's clearly, I mean, he's he's totally caught. He's clearly up against the wall. He knows that they lied. And he essentially admits that they were shown things that contradicted, you know, the intelligence about Iraq having WMDs, but they didn't show that. So in essence, that is lying. And yeah, Paul Wolfowitz, I mean, we know, I mean, Paul Wolfowitz actually, and I know you wanted to get into this subject, not maybe right away, but Paul Wolfowitz, one of the specific things he did in the Bush administration that I don't think any other Bush official did, at least on record, is he actually hired uh, old CIA director, James Woolsey, to come in as a consultant and to actually, he gave him a budget to do his own investigation. And that's what he calls it an investigation. I think it was more of a propaganda campaign to create a three-way connection between 9-11 Iraq and the anthrax attacks. To, so James Woolsey was brought in by Wolfowitz to, to create some kind of intelligence package that Iraq was behind the anthrax attacks. And we all know that that was complete bullshit. The Bush administration knew from the very beginning it was the AIM strain. Uh, so that everything they said after like November 2001 about it being Iraq was, a, you know, totally, uh, you know, devious and, uh, uh, for, you know, form of just complete propaganda. So, yeah, I mean, Wolfowitz is some of the, I think he's one of the scummiest, um, one of the most suspicious Bush officials, uh, personally speaking, um, from, from my end, yeah. That perfectly leads into the next question. Uh, you did an interview recently with Whitney Webb at her show and limited hangouts surrounding the um, 20th anniversary of the anthrax attacks. Uh, this incident was something that you and your sister, Abby Martin, studied intently on for months and did a timeline on Media Roots uh, radio podcast, uh, one of my favorites, which was Schrodinger's Super Patriot. Can you uh, talk oh. about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, Schrodinger's Super Patriot, um, I'll just say really quickly, if people are confused about what the title means, uh, it's a play on the, the term Schrodinger's cat. Uh, the The U.S. government and the FBI, in their own words, described their chosen suspect at the end of the anthrax investigation. They described him as a super patriot. And they described him that way because that they believe that implied that part of the motive of why he did this. Now, what they really say, so they're kind of, they actually have two motives. One of the more um, media approved narrative motives for the anthrax killer, who they say is Bruce Ivins, was that he was trying to get publicity for an anthrax vaccine that he helped design that wasn't being sold and that he wanted to create a crisis in order to get people to take his anthrax vaccine. The other theory that the FBI comes up with is that he was a super patriot and that he was so moved by 9-11 and Bush and the Bush administration that he essentially wanted to act on their behalf independently of them and go, uh, you know, above and beyond and, and, and do his own terrorist attack because he was such a patriot, such a neocon, so pro-American that he felt that he needed to do this in order to get people to really get on board with Bush's program. Um, but the podcast itself you're talking about, uh, it was us trying to basically make as cohesive as a timeline as we could 
narrative timeline about the attacks and what preceded the attacks. History Commons and other places have already done this, but we wanted to try to do it in like a, you know, our own original timeline. We're not just like ripping from other people's timelines and, you know, do it in sort of a true crime narrative way where it's where it's sort of us telling a story about, you know, how these people died, what it was like for their loved ones who were around them at the time, because I think in a lot of these, you know, the anthrax attacks, it tends to get a little depersonalized when you get into the, you know, the ins and outs of the case, you know, it's good. So I think Schrodinger's cat was a good presentation for us to really humanize the event as well, to show that these were real people who died. They suffered, their families suffered, their families were confused. They were lied to by the government. I mean, just the, one of the guys who survived in, in Schrodinger's super patriot, Ernesto Blanco, I mean, he was in the hospital with anthrax uh, and he was pretty much in a coma for weeks. And uh, the CDC wouldn't wouldn't admit he got anthrax until like several months later. So his family didn't even get the satisfaction of being able to talk to the news about it because like they refused to admit that he had it um, and he almost died. Uh, and so, you know, we tried to humanize these things and we also tried to show how bizarrely the bush administration took advantage of the attacks and even before the attacks happened we're already sort of laying out a propaganda track of we think the 9-11 hijackers were going to do anthrax next mm -hmm. even though bush didn't say that outright he sort of planted this idea in the public mind that the, that because the hijackers were trying to rent crop dusters that must mean that they were planning some kind of biological attack and actually uh, you know, most people don't remember this, but before anthrax, Bush actually, you know, he didn't order the plane uh, shot down 9-11, but he did order a blanket ban or not ban, but like uh, some kind of extra protocol on crop dusters. Like you couldn't rent one for like a period of like s several months unless you went through some red tape or something. You had to like jump through some extra hoops. And that was Bush's deal based on his, you know, this imaginary fear that there was going to be some kind of, uh, you know, plane-based anthrax attacks. And then sort of miraculously, the Bush administration did get, you know, in their favor, an anthrax attack that happened um, about, uh, I'm going to say, three weeks after he started talking about crop dusters. The, um, in 2008, the FBI requested a review of the scientific methods used in their investigation from the National Academy of Sciences, which released their findings in the 2011 report review of the scientific approaches used during the FBI's investigation of the anthrax letters. And the report ended up casting doubt on the government's conclusion that Ivins was the perpetrator. You have always maintained that Ivins was not a suspect. Um, who do you suspect that could be? Well, yeah, that's, that's the, I mean, Adam, I think you probably know how this has worked over the years with a lot of, people in the 9-11 movement and stuff it's like suspects first and, and evidence later right it's mm -hmm. sort of like you want to be like cheney fucking push the plunger down you know like uh, it blew up the bill it's sort of like so i guess my approach to this originally was definitely bruce ivins is not the suspect definitely i think the bush administration had something to do with this i still think that but in terms of the actual who executed the crime how was this done uh, who is more likely suspect than Ivan's? Well, I'll just say this. I think that it's pretty obvious based on not just the research I've done, but research that's come before me as early as even 2003, the first two anthrax books, actually, 
by Marilyn Thompson and Robert Graysmith, the guy who got famous, who's portrayed by Jake Gyllenhaal in the Zodiac movie. They both say in their book, because they're writing it, you know, before the narrative by the FBI gets sort of, let's say, massaged and, you know, uh, sort of whitewashed to their liking later on, the earlier narrative that the FBI was putting out was they were they were like telling uh, these authors of these books sort of behind the scenes and off the record that their frame of looking at this case from the very beginning was a multi-person crime, coordinated crime involving multiple people over multiple states. So that was the FBI's own belief. So I think that that alone shows that they know that they're lying about only going after one suspect later on, even if they think that they have real evidence that's maybe convincing to them that they think Bruce Ivins was involved. It's still a lie, even if they believe that, because they know that there are other people involved. And, and, and I say that because part of the research that I've done in the last three months is showing unequivocally that these St. Petersburg hoax anthrax letters, and people listening might have no idea what I'm talking about, but there's a, a researcher named Barbara Hatch Rosenberg who's essentially proved this, that there was a hoax series of letters and real letters that were sent almost at the exact same time. And they appear to be coordinated in such a way that they had to have been done by people working together or maybe even. So I guess to answer your question is who did it? I would say it had to have been more than one, uh, one person, at least two people. I, I tend to think it was actually uh, several people, a small group perhaps. Um, I think that it was somebody who already knew 9-11 was coming, who had foreknowledge of 9-11. Uh, there's new evidence that sort of I haven't really reported on yet in the podcast and other places that suggest that the St. Petersburg letter writer was writing letters before 9-11 leading up. It was sort of like a, a slow burn that they you know really ramped up after 9-11, but it, it preceded it. So there's evidence also to suggest whoever did this had foreknowledge of 9-11, which is, you know, kind of really implies that the suspects might be in various sectors of law enforcement or maybe intelligence, or they had themselves plugged into sectors of government or somewhere that knew, you know, had foreknowledge of 9-11. Um, addition to that, whoever did this, I believe, needed to be inoculated against anthrax infection. Otherwise, they would have had to be insane to put themselves at risk like that, dealing with weaponized anthrax spores. Now, what comes to mind for me, and I've argued with Whitney about this, she's, she doesn't see this, the theory, this, um, she doesn't see this theory as valid as I do, but I've been thinking about this a lot, and who would be, let's say, battle-ready to be able to do something involving weaponized anthrax spores without wearing a hazmat suit at the drop of a hat? I would say most of the general public would not be ready to engage in a, crim, crim, a crime like that. They wouldn't be, they would have to take Cipro. Cipro takes a few days to kick in. So I've been thinking lately, and I, and this is a theory that only recently I've come up with, is that perhaps whoever did this was already vaccinated against anthrax. So that's just one thing. I, and and I'm, not, I'm not giving you any names, Adam, so it's probably frustrating. No, it's really. fine. No, no, I don't. It's fine. <laughs> but. I do believe it was multiple people. I do believe that they had to have been already inoculated against anthrax to be willing to put themselves at risk like this because handling anthrax spores is very risky. And I do believe that, you know, it's possible that even people who did this 
might not have even realized they were engaging in a, in a murder. And I know that that's going to sound a little wacky because, you know, maybe people associate the sort of drill versus real concept with Alex Jones. But I guess, Adam, it's not that out of the realm of possibility to me that some, a group of younger soldiers, you know, could have been convinced that this was some kind of anti-terror drill of some kind. Um, mm. And and I don't know. That's, I mean, that's a complete speculative theory I'm throwing out there. But I, I would say that it had to have involved people with access to high, like high level aspects of the US government or governments uh, because someone who procured weaponized anthrax spores and someone knew 9-11 was around the corner who was behind this. So I think those two things alone um, imply that it's someone with high up connections. Not, but when I say that, I don't mean that people actually executed the crime. It could have just been you know, someone hired to do this. I don't know. Um, and that's, <laughs> I didn't really answer your question at all there. I'm sorry. Absolutely not. No, I mean, I don't want, the one thing I'm very careful of is to disseminate what is true and what is not. And that's the whole basis of the podcast is to disseminate what is true and what is not, because I think we both are well known uh, through our experience with the truth movement that there is a, a, an enormous or a saturation of disinformation where they use speculation as a form of evidence. Yeah, um, or they make together and you can't distinguish. It's not clear where it's, you know, where that line is. Correct. Um, you bring up an interesting topic, however, in, in the uh, response was about the hoax letters. Um, it, very few people know about this, but in late 2001, there was a person by the name of Clayton Wagner, who was an, uh, an anti-abortion uh, activist who mailed hundreds of uh, anthrax hoax letters uh, to abortion clinics in the United States. And then you had the, this is what you covered in the, in the film about the hoax letters that were sent to, of all people, Judith Miller of the New York well, Times in October of 2001. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I want to go back to that abortion thing really quick, because that's a really interesting part of this that I haven't covered. I think, I mean, it does seem like that's the guy who did it, like Clayton Wagner. Yeah. But the other part, I don't know if you read it, how much you read about that, Adam, but it's interesting because if he's behind that, uh, it seems like he was able to use, he somehow got a hold of Planned Parenthood's like FedEx account number or something and like managed to send the amount of letters that he sent uh, was pretty ridiculous. And I, part of me wonders if there was someone copycatting or sort of piggybacking off of that. Mm. Like, you know, this crazy anti-abortion guy did this. And then, cause the amount of, if you read the amount of letters that actually went out and who they went out to was, it was actually pretty insane. Like the amount of resources, whoever did, um, was behind that spent on doing that. But it's like, there's so many anthrax hoaxes throughout time, even before 9-11, that it didn't occur to me to actually look into any of these specifically and be like, is this important to the anthrax crime? Because what, you know, how are you going to, there's thousands of them, really. I mean, especially when you go after 9-11, it almost becomes a meme. It's like, you know, people sending white powder to their friends as pranks, you know, was something that people would do. So, um. He sent, by the way, just added, he sent 550 letters to FedEx. Yeah. 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 And, and somehow he got a hold of what, I guess that, that was a weird thing to me is somehow he got a hold of Planned Parenthood's FedEx account number and managed to like buy postage, like using their own money. So it was, it was a weird, weird thing that was mm -hmm. pulled off. But 
the Judith Miller hoax letter is the one that stood out to me, Adam, because if people, you know, I don't know if listeners of your program are already aware of this, but Judith Miller wasn't just someone who took a fall for a Bush official, you know, to not reveal him as the source during that whole weird Valerie Plame affair, which is a weird ball of yarn to unpack in and of itself. But Judith Miller was the bioweapons reporter. She was the expert leading bioweapons reporter in the country. Um, she was basically anybody on the inside who wanted to leak something to her about bioweapons or, you know, tell her about a new exciting, you know, mutant uh, enhanced strain of whatever they would tell her and have her write about it in the New York Times. And she was actually friends with Bill Patrick, who is sort of considered the godfather of modern U.S. bioweapons program, along with people like Ken Alibek, who sort of was one of his protégés. Um, Bill Patrick was actually a suspect initially in the case, and he was polygraphed by the FBI and he passed. Um, now, Whitney, uh, I, I don't know if she believes he's a, directly a suspect, but she has a lot of writings about how insane he used to talk about bioweapons. I mean, he was he would throw like vials of white powder at people and be like, if this was anthrax, you'd be dead right now. And like, he, he would do just weird stuff like that all the time to, to try to teach people about bioweapons. But Judith Miller, um, you know, this hoax letter that was sent to her from St. Petersburg always stood out to me because uh, she describes it in her article title as a cloud of powder, sort of being attacked by a cloud of powder. Now, I always, and I even, I think I even made this mistake in Schrodinger's Patriot where I was under the impression that several of the real anthrax letters let out sort of a, a powdery cloud in the air. And that that was part of the visual imagery of people's experience opening the real anthrax letters. But what I've discovered going back through all this is that it's actually not the real anthrax letters, except for the dash of letter, because I do think that that one was a very fine white powder. But before that, Adam, that image of a white cloud of powder being like the delivery method for weaponized anthrax wars, that comes from Judith Miller's hoax letter, talcum mm. powder. Because if you have a little pile of talcum powder and you blow on it, it's going to go in the air. It's going to look like it's, you know, kind of floating in the air. So that whole visual image of this, you know, cloud of weaponized anthrax spores, you breathing it in and you're, you're seeing it in the room. That comes from Judith Miller getting the hoax anthrax letter. Um, but what's really, really weird is the very first anthrax letter in the entire timeline. So you go back to the first anthrax infection, Erin O'Connor of NBC News, who was an aide to Tom Brokaw. She got anthrax sometime around the 25th. She started to get sick. She calls the FBI along with NBC's management around the 25th to say, we got this suspicious letter. It has white powder in it. It looks like anthrax. Can you come and check this out? For some reason, they wait two days to come and check it out. In the meantime, she starts getting sick. So she goes to the hospital. And while in the hospital, uh, they, they conduct a test on her wound. She has a wound. And they find out that it's cutaneous skin anthrax infection. Now, the FBI at this time contact her. They now have the letter. They're getting it tested at their lab. And they're talking to her, you know, they're, they're asking her about the St. Petersburg letter because in their mind and in her mind, this St. Petersburg letter that got sent to Tom Brokaw 
that I should say for your audience has had fake anthrax and it had talcum powder in it. She believed and the FBI believed this was her delivery of infection. This is how she got infected. Well, it turns out a few days later, the FBI calls her and they say, you know what? That letter you that we have tested negative for anthrax. We don't understand. You have we know you have anthrax, but the letter that you gave us tested negative. Is there any other possibility you could have gotten this um, in some other way? So after she picks her brain a bit, she's like, you know what? There was another letter that I got, but I didn't really, rem I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but I filed it away and I remembered it had some, something that looked like sand in it. So the FBI goes back. They ask the janitor, I guess, of the building to go and look for it. And the janitor immediately finds the real letter that everybody had forgotten existed. The one that said death to Israel, death to America, Allah is great. Somehow Aaron O'Connor had forgotten about that until weeks later when the FBI jogged her memory and asked her, is there anything else you know, that you could have gotten in the mail? So to, in her mind, the hoax letter from St. Petersburg that had the talcum powder left more of an impression on her, and she believed that's how she got sick. But in fact, the FBI is claiming that it wasn't from that letter, that that was a hoax, but the real anthrax letter had, was the one that infected her that had a Sandy-like material in it. Now, I should also mention that these letters, the hoax letter from St. Petersburg was postmarked September 20th. The hoax letter from Trenton, or sorry, the real anthrax letter from Trenton, New Jersey that actually apparently infected her, that one was sent out on September 18th. So nowhere in the news at all was there any information about an anthrax attack until October 5th. And even then, the government wouldn't admit it was bioterrorism. They still said that Robert Stevens may have you know, drinking some water from a stream or something. Mm -hmm. And that's how he got anthrax. So, I mean, I guess to make a long story short here, the, the FBI's investigation of the Amerithrax attacks actually started with a hoax letter from St. Petersburg. Not a real letter. And yet, the government tried to tie this in with Iraq. And which I find, I want to get your thoughts on this, because I think this is the hint of irony in all of this, is that even incidentally, for the years prior to September 11th, the U.S. government had criticized the Iraqi government for possessing chemical and biological weapons when they used against Iran in 1980 in the yeah. war. However, according to Scott Ritter, the former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq from 91 to 98, he said in an interview in 2002 that by 1998, 90 to 95% of Iraq's nuclear biological and chemical capabilities, including long-range ballistic missiles of delivering such weapons have been verified as destroyed. With the verification that Iraq had no biological or chemical weapons, it now comes down to the faulty intelligence that we spoke about, um, <laughs> about the White House and Colin Powell with his speech at the National Security Council, which precipitated the war in 2003. I'd like to get I mean, your thoughts overall on that. It's remarkable, Adam, because when you really look at this timeline, it's hard to make sense of it because, you know, if, if you learn that the anthrax was such a pivotal or was used as such a strong talking point to get us into Iraq and, and you think to yourself, okay, well, you know, what is Robbie really saying here? He's saying that they use the anthrax attacks, letter attacks to create all this hysteria and fear and then use it as a ramp to get us into Iraq. But 
well, Robbie's wrong because they were already going after Stephen Hadfield in 2003 before April. They had already, you know, been, they actually, the FBI already put out a profile as early as 2002 saying, we think it's basically like a Unabomber style dude. So here you have the FBI, you know, kind of quietly, but, you know, still a little bit publicly saying they thought it was an inside job. And they thought it was someone with access to U.S. bioweapons. But then you have this other track going in the media that's actually getting more attention, that's alluding that it's Iraq, possibly. And you have people like John McCain going on David Letterman, which is crazy, really, that he said that he thinks the next stage is Iraq and that Saddam sent the anth- you know, the, there's good information out there that Saddam sent the anthrax. And David Letterman's like, oh, really? You know, he's like taking it all seriously. And then you have... And this is what I think is actually really clever of the Bush administration, Adam. And I think this is where people's historical lens of Bush is distorted based on something that kind of they wanted you to think at the time, which is that they were idiots, that Bush was an idiot, Hmm. that they were incompetent. They were so dumb, they couldn't even think to plant WMDs in Iraq so that they could be like, you know what? Look, we were right. They did find WMDs. There's all these sort of narratives out there that they were just dumb and incompetent and daddy made him go to war and all this stuff it's like here's the reality of the wmd thing they didn't give a shit if we found wmds or not there because they knew they knew it was just a reason to get us to go over there they didn't care they didn't they knew that once we were there what what is where people going to say oh you didn't find wmds now you have to leave no they're they didn't care at all so that i mean that's the reality of the wmds thing and not to mention that wmds was always a metonym code for anthrax from the very beginning of when they used it it was never meant really to talk about nukes or nerve gas that was thrown in later it was always meant to insinuate anthrax because the bush administration was clever enough never to directly come out and say we think that they never said we think al-qaeda did this they never came out and said we think saddam might be behind this they left it open-ended on purpose like bush said you know this is this is terrorism Al-Qaeda is a terrorist organization, and I wouldn't put anything past them. Dick Cheney would come out and make certain statements like that where can't rule out that this is Al-Qaeda. Hmm. They never were dumb enough to say on record that they thought it was Saddam. But what they did was they actually had all their sort of neoconservative allies outside of the administration do that for them in the press. And they did it extremely well. I mean, they started right after the anthrax attacks all the way until the Iraq war and even after, even though the FBI was already looking at a lone scientist in the US, even though the FBI already established it was aim strain, even though everybody in the Bush administration obviously knew all these things because they had been briefed by the FBI, it didn't matter. They still got all their neoconservative allies to pump this narrative that it had the, uh, the anthrax had bentonite in it, which was a, a hallmark of Iraq's uh, you know WMD program or that you know, Mohammed Atta met with uh, so-and-so in, in Prague, or you probably know more about that incident where he was talking about how to get anthrax. And mm. and even some neocons were still pushing the idea that the hijackers, uh, you know, were trying to rent crop dusters. Some of the research that I've gone into in my recent podcast about how there's weird crossover between the hijackers and anthrax. And then even, and then Ari, uh, Ari Fleischer put the kibosh on it finally. It was like once the Bush administration already gotten into Iraq, had already gotten their surrogates to go out there and lie, 
Ari Fleischer finally comes out and says there's no connection between Al Qaeda in Iraq with the anthrax attacks after we're already in Iraq, of course. And after he says that, there's still a weird neocon faction that is still trying to push the Iraq did anthrax narrative. And specifically, the one who was leading that charge was oddly Mike Pence back in 2006. And Ari Fleischer actually, much later, argued with him. I think on Twitter about it or something. He's like, I told you that I was like, you were still going out there and saying this. And I don't know. It's weird. But basically the Bush administration, I think, was very clever in the way that they rolled this out. They never directly said Stom was behind it, but they got the public to believe he was with a lot of really clever and frequent insinuations um, to the point where I think it just sort of primed people's minds. So that once they saw that Colin Powell speech, they understood all the subtext. They understood it. Colin Powell only references the anthrax mailings once. And he says, one teaspoon, or he's like, a quarter of a teaspoon was in this was in that envelope that was sent to Tom Brokaw. He's like, Iraq has 40,000 teaspoons or something like that, you know, about, and it's like, so he, he doesn't even, he doesn't say Iraq did it. He doesn't say we have evidence. We think that it was done by a foreign terrorist. He just makes that sort of psychological connection. And I think that that was enough. And I really do think that it was like, you know, I don't know if the Bush administration had psychologists learning how to do this, but there was a cleverness to it that I think is not really discussed, that I think that they knew how to weave this without, let's say, without exposing themselves to being like caught on microphones saying something that was blatantly fictional, you know. It, it was it was a more clever way to weave this. And they and they and there is Colin Powell, you know, the man who is represents this bipartisan trustworthiness. You know, it was meant for liberals. That's the reason why they put him out there. He was a trustworthy guy. And uh, yeah. And then also, Adam, I mean, Wilkerson helped him write that speech. And I, I'm still annoyed that he hasn't answered for that either. And when Abby asked him about it, he acted like just kind of he had no idea what she was talking about. And I, you know, to me, that's one of the greatest crimes of the Bush administration is that they use the anthrax attacks to whip people up into hysteria and, 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 and still sort of insinuated that it was a foreign attack until it was no longer convenient to do so. And then they just sort of, you know, forget about that narrative. Like, what's Bruce Ives? Here, we're in Iraq. Like, we're already, you know, we're here. So that's kind of what they did with it. Um, just to revisit, too, back to your film, American Anthrax, we know that the disinformation came from the State Department, but there was another entity that was uh, just as guilty in spreading that disinformation. Uh, you mentioned in the film that the legacy media started to spread the unverified rumors that the manufactured anthrax was from Iraq. Yeah. However, in late October, ABC's Brian Ross said that despite continued White House denials, four placed in separate sources told ABC News that initial tests on the anthrax by the U.S. Army at Fort Detrick have detected trace amounts of the chemical additives bendonite and silica, the same anthrax type sent to Dashiell and Leahy, who you mentioned, who ironically just moved to force to vote on Senate regarding the Iraq war measure on the House in 2002. Now, two questions here for you. It seemed the White House was trying to get the public approval for war by spreading disinformation about anthrax through the media and was Daschle specifically targeted because he was against the war in Iraq? Good questions. I mean, as you're saying that, Adam, I think that the Bush administration was like, again, 
I think they were a little more clever than people give them credit for. And I wonder if this was also a game for them that because it could imply multiple things here. It could imply that there was a neocon faction or a faction that was really wanting to pin this on Iraq, but the Bush, there was a faction in the Bush administration that wanted to put the kibosh on that. That's sort of what it seems like on the surface that Ari Fleischer is trying to shut this down mm-hmm. while Brian Ross is out there running with this ABC News leak from four, like you said, four separate well-placed officials. Well, what if it was done on purpose? What if, and this is speculation, but what if Ari Fleischer, you know, what if they wanted that to go out on ABC? Continuing sort of that, you know, we're not going to say Iraq's behind this, but we're going to have people do it in the press. And then we're going to sit here and officially deny it. But, you know, Brian Ross is still going to do it. I don't know. I mean, that's, I wonder if that's the case because who was, who were those four well-placed officials? Were they more neocon than, you know, Ari Fleischer? Uh, were they were they part of the Wolsey Wolfowitz faction? I really don't know, um, and I think that's still a mystery why why the Bush administration played it the way that they did, and why they didn't jump at the opportunity at the times that they could have to really hype up and whip up hysteria about anthrax because they actually waited at least a week to identify the first anthrax attack as bioterrorism, which is. I think one of the strangest things they ever did. I mean, of all the things they jumped on and hyped up and fear-mongered us about that one, you know, they waited a week and and were really sort of wanting to make sure they knew for sure that it was terrorism and not random. I mean, that just doesn't sound right to me with the way the Bush administration behaved, you know? So I, that's still an odd mystery to me why they waited on that. And, um, and then later John Ashcroft finally lets the FBI go in there but maybe that's why. Maybe they knew that, uh, you know, let's just say they had something to do with it. Maybe they didn't want the FBI in there for a week for a specific reason. So I don't know. Um, do you again. think do you think Daschle was specifically targeted because of his position against the Iraq war? You know, I don't think it was because of the Iraq war. I think the Patriot Act theory adds up because him and Leahy were actually asking for a delay on the vote hmm. um a, a lot of earlier sort of anthrax researchers would sort of oversimplify this and say they were against the patriot act well i mean if you really look at their record they were pretty neoliberal centrist guys who took caution who took some caution about the rushed patriot act hmm. and i think that alone agitated whoever this murderer or murderers were enough to target them specifically. It was merely just the asking for a little bit of a delay uh, that was upsetting enough. So yeah, I think, I think Dashiell could have been targeted over that. Um, but you know, if I really go back and think about it, there were more, I would say there were more aggressively anti-Iraq war people that I think pr- really posed more of a threat so I don't know if that was the motive. I mean, like if I go back and watch, for example, Lincoln Chaffee grilling Wolfowitz or other Bush officials, I mean, like you would think if that, if, if they were trying to target the most anti-Iraq war or anti-war people in that, you know, they would have targeted someone like Kim or Kucinich. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's possible, but I know, I mean, I know Dashiell was not the most anti, like, like, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure he voted for a lot of the supplementals and stuff. Like, I don't know his actual, hmm you know, his actual record later on. Um, 
Like, did he vote? Did, did he even not vote for it initially? I wonder. I think initially he was against at first. Okay. Yeah. But it was an, almost an overwhelming vote. I should also say, Adam, and I don't know if people, some of your audience probably knows this, is he was, he actually, I think your, I think it's possible he was attacked because he was he admitted and he and he let it out there that bush and cheney were badgering him to not investigate 9 11 like that that comes to mind to me too because it's like i mean that is a pretty crazy thing to to basically try to convince a senator of and the fact that he said it um was pretty ballsy on his part i mean i don't know if he really realized what he was saying at the time honestly mm. i mean you really look at the whole thing that's that's a pretty, uh, that's pretty revealing, you know, thing to let out there. The Bush administration was intimidating him out of doing any form of investigation. You know, they, I'm talking about the congressional joint inquiry of, into 9-11. Right. The uh, interesting, you brought up the uh, Patriot Act because it was Ashcroft who pressured the bipartisan compromise in the House Judiciary Committee, which allowed for legislation for the Patriot Act to move forward with full consideration later that month, and it was formally announced on October 25th, 2001. And I think that was basically because of the anthrax attacks. It's so, dude, it's so crazy because, yeah, like the anthrax attacks were going on while they were trying to pass, pass the Patriot Act. Like if you read stories at the time, there was actually like people got locked in. Like at, at, I think at the first, when it first happened, there were actually people locked in. And then they quarantined the building and then people were basically locked out. So there were some times during that where like I read stories where people were like cu cutting and pacing with a glue stick, like putting together and revising the bill because they couldn't have access to their computers or certain printers. There was all this weird activity, you know, where they were scurrying to try to construct this bill and get it passed as, as soon as possible. Um, and then I, I guess what I was what I was trying to say is also the Afghanistan war was also like launching at the same time. So imagine the flurry of media coverage and how much that also sort of buried the anthrax attacks. You know, it's like, it's actually hard to find people really focusing on the anthrax attacks like they should have been because of the amount of activity simply happening at that time. I mean, the, you know, the Afghanistan war took up an enormous amount of media coverage. You know, they had the graphics and the, you know, the spinning flags and everything they had. It was like a, it was a full on like CGI, you know, show in a way at the time. All right, we're switching gears. In January of 2001, the security branch of the US Drug Enforcement Agency began to receive a number of peculiar reports from DEA officers across the country. In fact, reports came in from more than 40 cities and continued throughout the first six months of 2001. Agents of the DEA, ATF, Air Force, Secret Service, FBI, and even the US Marshal Service documented some 130 separate incidents. This was otherwise known as the Israeli art student ring. You have focused on this intently over the last months. Tell us a little bit more what made you take an interest in this operation? Well, I had already heard about it. I mean, I already heard, you know, years for years, the dancing Israelis, the urban moving system stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it became sort of a bone of contention in the 9-11 movement for a lot of people because it, it became sort of this, you know, factionalized thing where it's like people saying like the Mossad did 9-11 where only, all they want to talk about was the four Israelis and urban moving systems and then people who were really mad at you know anybody bringing that up and said like you're just trying to make it all about that and so that was sort of my I mean like that's really all I knew I knew a little bit about the art students like 
the concept. Um, but I actually didn't know anything about it until a buddy of mine, John Gold, um, who's, you know, been doing 9-11 research for 20 years. Hmm. He had a comment on his Facebook page uh, by a guy. And I recognized the guy's name. It was Emmanuel Spherios. And I recognized him from the psychedelic drug community, which I was already familiar with from my early college days. Uh, Emmanuel Spherios was actually a uh, sort of a semi-famous figure within that movement where, when I came into it because Emmanuel Spherios um, would, was part of what I would say was like a really good public service that was sort of going against the DEA at the time. You know, the DEA and the government's attitude was we basically turn any drug user into a criminal. That's still their attitude. If you use drugs, illegal drugs, you are a criminal. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, the talk of drug treatment being an option for people who get arrested for drug crimes in the US. That's really only a topic that's that came more normalized after 9-11. You know, it's like more of that's a more of a modern thing we can talk about. Back when Emmanuel was doing this, he was basically making sure people didn't die because his theory and he's and he lays this out on my podcast. He thinks the DEA and the government were actually propping up drug dealers who were flooding the market with basically poisonous ecstasy. And using that as an excuse to, to lie about the dangers of ecstasy, MDMA. And I think he, act, I mean, you can read a lot about this and there is, I think, good evidence that this is how the DA has operated a lot over time is they will sort of pick a certain specific sector of the black market that's distributing basically an adulterated form of the drug and say the drug itself is poison. Uh, when in MDMA's case, MDMA is... You know, there's been a lot of studies on it. It really hasn't been shown to have any neurotoxic effects or anything like that. But what happened at the time was it was known as something that you can instantly die from taking. So his business idea was, and it wasn't to make money, it was as a public service, to go to raves, go to popular spots where kids are doing ecstasy, and set up actual chemistry testing kits to make sure people didn't die from taking adulterated ecstasy. So he would, people would line up at these raves, you know, kids uh, before they would take their pills would bring it to the, his booth. And he had a lot of volunteers working for him at the time. And they would actually do like a real time, uh, like almost like a drug test kit you can buy now at like Walgreens. They would test the pill to see if it was pure MDMA or what else it had in it. And they probably saved thousands of lives, honestly, at the time. I mean, for what he was doing. So some, for some reason, this attracted the attention of what he thought was the DEA coming to visit his unlisted private office suite address in a building in San Francisco. And this organization that he ran was called dancesafe.org. They had branches all around the country now. He definitely knew that he was being watched by federal law enforcement. Anybody in any realm of illegal drug advocacy at the time was being watched by DEA. It was just sort of like you just knew that it was that was how it was because there was a very small amount of people, the feds were watching you. Even you go to any event and it was like, it wasn't even paranoid to be like, yeah, there's feds here. Like, don't talk about where to buy drugs. Like, you know, not like we're just here as academics and there's feds here waiting for one of us to slip up so that they can take this down, you know, take this organization down essentially. So he thought the DEA had taken an interest in him enough to send basically like spies to his office. Because one day in 1999, a group of kids 
in their early 20s, knocked on his private office suite door in San Francisco, an address that wasn't really listed anywhere. It wasn't like a door-to-door salesman would be walking through the building going office to office. But these people who came to his door claimed to be door-to-door salesmen selling art. And the conversation was already suspicious to him because he figured these were somehow these were feds in his mind. He's like, these guys have to be DEA. Why are they here? And he was convinced that he had that he had just interacted with feds because they started to ask him about ecstasy and MDMA. And he's like, well, these people obviously know what we do here and this is really sketchy and I'm going to tell them to leave, you know, because at that point he's like, you know, I'm going to see what this is. This seems suspicious that these feds are talking to me. But then as soon as they started asking about drugs, he's like, no, no, no. Like this is, this is really suspicious. So he told them to leave. Years later, he reads Christopher Ketchum's stuff, I think in Salon. Mm. And he's like, I was visited by Israeli art students. Like this wasn't feds or DA. This, this is exactly what happened to me. These two guys came to my office, suspiciously slow. No one ever visited our office unsolicited, you know, door-to-door salesmen. And they said they were from the university of, I don't know, what, what, what's the university they used to say they're from? It starts with a K, I think. I forget. I, uh, Imaginary art university. He remembered the name. He even remembered the portfolios they carried around. And he remembers them being like a pair, which is often, uh, for some reason, they would often come in pairs. And, you know, he read about all this in Christopher Ketchum's article about the Israeli art students. And he was like, I was visited by the goddamn Israeli art students. So it wasn't American feds that visited me. It was like Israeli spies. And that just threw him for a loop because he was trying to figure out what that meant, why Israeli spies would have visited him because, you know, it already doesn't make very much sense when you look at the DEA report because it's like they visited DEA officials. They visited DEA officials' homes. They visited DEA chemists homes like like lab technicians at the da they would like go find out like where they lived and go visit them at their home um so to him he's like well it must have had something to do with drugs because you know if they're going to visit da they're coming to visit me maybe there's something here where the is like he was thinking the israeli intelligence was plugged into the american black market of the e-trade here and there's some evidence to suggest with Amdocs, especially that that probably was happening on some level, but it's like, it's not, it's obviously like a tiny slice of what was actually happening. It's like a tip of the iceberg, I guess I would say of what, what, what that actually was, because I mean, frankly, Adam, I really don't know what it was other than a distraction of some kind. I mean, that's, you know, it seemed like the, probably the best explanation, but again, what, you know, like it's, it, it's a convoluted mystery to me still, but it obviously relates to things like the E-Trade, 9-11 even. I mean, even just from my map, uh, putting together this map research project, you know, in the DA memo, they talk about these Israeli art students being really close to and trying to track down chemists who work for the DA. Well, it seems like some of these Israeli art students were also really close to Battelle, which is another, which is a U.S. government contractor that deals in biological materials and, and does a lot of chemistry. So I don't know. I mean, there's, I, I don't know why they were there. I'm sure you have some theories. Um, but in Florida specifically, Adam, it does seem like they were there shadowing 9-11 hijackers at times. And that's pretty hard to, that theory I think is pretty hard to dispute. It's 
the timeline is very close. The geographical locations are very close. And even the apparatus of how these Israeli artisans groups supposedly work, where they had a cell ringleader and underlings working under them. Well, same kind of thing with the hijacker. The leader, you know, apparently Mohammed Atta was the leader. He had some of his underlings living in an apartment complex next to a team leader of Israeli art students and his underlings. So it's just kind of strange how all those things sort of line up together. You know, it's what does it mean? Why would they have been tracking the 9-11 hijackers? I couldn't tell you, um, but it seems like that's what they were doing. Or may I know I don't know. Did they actually interact with them at a certain point? I haven't we don't have any proof of that, but it's possible. You know, I don't I really don't know, though. Yeah, there's, there, there seems to be too many coincidences regarding this. And this is something that I, that's also mentioned in uh, a document I think I shared with you a while back called the Gerald Shea Memo, yeah. where the retired lawyer out of Chicago actually did an independent investigation regarding the Israeli art students and moving front companies. And uh, incidentally enough, you saw connections. And he laid it out with names and uh, that was coming from the arrest reports of the uh, local police where you saw a number of these art student uh, individuals living precariously close to where Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, and even where Ziad Jara lived. And Jara lived separately from Atta and, and, and al-Shehi. Um, it just seemed, they, for me, it's just like, you can't, and I'm like you, where you can't make that connection that they were there for them, but they, where there was smoke, there's fire. And I'm yeah. like, it's too close to home for me to say that this is all just a coincidence because it's not only in Florida, but it's also in New Jersey and it's also in New York. And, and well, later I found out that some of them even lived near Khalid Ahmedar and Nawaf Hazmi out west. And, and really, it just, when you really think about it, it's just like, I, again, I, you know, I hate to sound like a broker. I'm like you, where I can't make that solid connection that they knew but they were there at the right times, wherever they were, and just too close. That's what yeah. I think, anyway. No, I mean, I think, but I think it's also good to look at this from the angle of whoever these art students were, they were given almost no cover story that could hold up under mm. And that, to me, is really odd because... If we're looking at this as was this a distraction or meant to waste resources, then you know you kind of have to wonder like why didn't they have better cover stories? Was it meant? Were they meant to just get blown immediately and then you know waste resources of the DEA? It's it's very confusing, um, and I also am curious too. Like why? I guess I would like to see pictures of all these people. You know, did any of them? You know, let's just throw out a completely wacky theory. Did any of them? look anything like any of the hijackers let's just say i mean is that possible that maybe any of these art arts are in florida look kind of like one of the hijackers i don't know i don't know what that would mean if they did but i i just think it's curious that we don't have pictures of, any of these people um maybe they're out there but there was another really crazy document that i didn't realize existed until like four months ago called the fin list and i'm sure you and and dj are already familiar with this that and I didn't realize the origin of where this document came from either, but apparently it's either Finnish intelligence or Dutch intelligence. You know, which, which one it was. That, I want to, I want to say it was Finnish. Uh, uh, well, I haven't looked at this. Doc you just reminded me because I haven't saved in bookmarks. I have not looked at this document in a long time. 
Well, the guy you're talking about, the lawyer includes it in his report as one of the exhibits, but in his report, unfortunately, it's not, it's not in text form. It's like a, almost like a bitmap screen cap of it. So you can barely, some of the addresses you can barely read in the, in the document you're referring to with the maps. Right, now right. I found the original PDF. So if you don't have it, I can send it to you. It's all, could, could you? all readable. Um, yeah, but what's fascinating about this is apparently this was accidentally left up on a public website by an, a European intelligence. I want to say Finnish or Dutch. I'm not sure. And it was given to them by U.S. federal agencies. That's the story. So what that means is these U.S. federal agencies were sharing a giant list with 9-11 suspects and Israeli art students on the same list. Why would they be doing that? I mean, you have to ask that question. Why would they, why would they think they belonged on the same list? I mean, that's a, I think that's a really important question to ask. Um, because if they thought they were should be on the same list, then that kind of implies they thought they had some link to 9-11 or some, you know, because there's a lot of, I should say, when I say link to 9-11, there's a lot of suspects on the Finn list that some of them are just like white European guys. Like there's a lot of people in this web that they were trying to construct. So, and that, and that includes people like, um, I want to say, uh, Jean, Fra what's his name? Francois Bosilic, uh, the, the Belgian terrorist guy who was mysteriously, um, like they, the FBI was looking at this guy, like right after nine 11, because he was like a Belgian terrorist that had somehow fled to the United States and had gotten, had gotten like immunity here. Like no one was able to touch him here. I don't know. Anyways, the Finn list is, is fascinating. And that's basically was, I was like, okay, here I have basically a hundred, you know, 300 addresses. I'll just plug all these into a map and see what happens. And that was the, that's how the maps, uh, the Florida event attacks map that I put together started. Was it just like, I just plopped all those under the map. And as soon as I did, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is like, I can build on this and just, you know, why not add a layer of anthrax suspects and locations and, and different, you know, addresses to this map because, you know, they were already saying, you know, that there's some kind of weird connection between the hijackers and the anthrax attacks. And there is weird proximity to where the hijackers were to where the anthrax attacks happened. I mean, that's another thing that, you know, just like you're saying where there's smoke, there's fire with this, there's something happening here that I cannot quite explain. Cause I don't think the hijackers did anthrax. I mean, they couldn't have because they died before i mean they wouldn't have been able to um someone else would have had to send those letters even if they were somehow involved in that but you know that was the narrative that the bush administration was trying to build upon really early on so i i wonder what that means and why there are so many weird connections there and then and then the one of the strangest ones of all is that robert stevens the first anthrax victims boss mike irish at the sun which was one of actually the more of the one of the trashier tabloids at, out of uh, American Media Inc. It was the one where by the late 90s, early 2000s was all Dead Sea Scrolls, Nostradamus, biblical prophecies stuff at the grocery store aisle. <laughs> so Mike Irish, his boss, his editor, his wife was Gloria Irish. And the FBI actually questioned Gloria Irish initially thinking that she might be a potential suspect. They actually would put out public statements saying like, we're, like they called her in the middle of the night. And I think when the FBI calls you at like one in the morning kind of means they don't, they don't really, 
they don't really they're not really being courteous to you at the very least mm. and it's also a little bit of a way to throw you off you know like i don't think the fbi call any you know i mean maybe they called a lot of people at one in the morning or three in the morning the fact that they called gloria irish at one in the morning to grill her about her interactions with the 9-11 hijackers and showing them apartment buildings i think is interesting and you can also see the way they talked about her and her husband uh they were kind of almost trying to stephen hatfieldize her at first and then they backed off but basically the reason why her and her husband are suspicious is because robert stevens boss you know at ami he dies from anthrax robert stevens does and Gloria Irish is just coincidentally was showing hijackers apartments leading up to the 9-11 attacks. And she actually procured two apartment buildings for some of the hijackers. Um, and she's also got, you know, and that's, and that's the only thing I knew about it, is that she showed uh, apartment buildings to two or sorry, I want to say, I think it was two hijackers and she got them uh, apartments. She also on my map, what I found is, looking through public records is that her and her husband have all these other bizarre linkages proximity closeness to completely different hijackers so if she was only showing you know let's say well if she was you know in proximity close to all the same hijackers she was showing apartments to maybe that would make sense but the fact that her and her husband keep popping up on this map so close to all the other hijackers at completely different times i think is a little bit odd and it does kind of raise questions about you know was there another let's just say we already know huffman aviation some of this stuff daniel hopsickers pulled out about 9 11 in florida some of these companies seem like fronts or conduits for black ops things you know huffman aviation would advertise outside the united states to foreign nationals to teach them flying and they would and when these foreign nationals would come to huffman aviation to take flying lessons they would then say you know, we can also get you an apartment. We have like five people in the area that, you know, can get you an apartment. So it's like this little network of people, were the, was this perhaps some kind of conduit for black ops? This whole thing, I don't know. Was Gloria Irish, you know, an actual <laughs> conduit for something like that? I don't know either. But again, where there's smoke, there's fire. These things just have not been properly investigated, I think. And I think besides people like Graham McQueen, and you know catch him and some of these other people have really tried to follow the threads of the israeli art students it's it's just kind of been ignored um you know and people like you are, are still talking about it but it's you know we we simply it just sort of at a certain point we hit a wall and it's just like what does all this stuff actually mean it's it means something but you know yeah i agree it's just like it it almost is uh compounded also because of the fringe conspiracists that arise and basically of taking the, the steam away from a proper investigation oh, yeah. into this as well. Um, you know, the no planes and the hijackers and all this stuff. Um, however, you brought up a very important podcast uh, back in 2019. Um, it was called, entitled, I remember, it was Ecstasy Israeli Art Students at the Mossad, uh, where you spoke at length about the drug ring of yeah. the Israeli Mossad. Um, what did you uncover there? Well, I mean, actually, D DJ Thermal Detonator uh, helped me out. Uh, on, I mean, he he had more information about pre-existing news stories about Israeli nationals or government-related people who, you know, were involved in ecstasy. I guess 
I can't take credit for uncovering anything personally there, but I thought probably the most intriguing thing was goes all the way back to Amdocs and how hmm. and how Amdocs was this really big company that was doing like the phone logs for all the major telephone companies, yet they were actively and the and the DA memo talks about this. They were they believe they were actively blowing sting operations where the DEA would get to a major, you know, they would surveil, they would, they would keep tabs on a major drug deal about to happen. And then when they would go to raid it, raid the location, it would be emptied out, cleaned out, you know, like they had gotten the, someone had gotten the jump on them and in their eyes, someone did. And the only explanation they could come up with was it must've been Amdocs, this Israeli company that they also thought had links to the Mossad and Israeli intelligence. So that's the strange sort of tie-in with the Israeli art students is they're talking about both of these different things happening sort of unrelated to each other. Um, now, maybe there was a direct connection between Amdocs and students. I don't think, I don't remember ever reading about it, but uh, but yeah, the actual ecstasy trade involving Israeli nationals, um, I mean, it's it sort of was a cultural meme. I mean, like I, I even went back and watched. There was like a movie with Jesse Eisenberg, uh, and uh, he was a rabbi, and his friend and him were rabbis in the movie, and they sort of got involved in an ecstasy smuggling ring. And I, you know, I was like, is this is this bullshit? Is this like something that actually was, you know, did it really happen? And apparently, it was like a really big deal that rabbis were being used as drug mules, <laughs> like like I mean, like Orthodox rabbi, you know, like in the full getup. Um, were being used as actual ecstasy mules a lot uh, back in the ecstasy trade. Um, and yeah, I mean, I know that most of the ecstasy was distributed through Israel at one time. Uh, it was actually manufactured mostly in Eastern Europe and sort of imported through Israel and then distributed to the rest of the world through there. But um, you probably actually know more than me, Adam, about um, you know actual ties to the Israeli government with you know, if there if there are exist like direct ties, yeah, I mean, was, you know, like there was a politician who got in trouble, right? For for being, I mean, I mean, I forget his name though. There was like a, a Ray. I remember there was an Israeli politician who was involved in some ecstasy deal at one time, but I don't uh, know. There was a, yeah, I mean, this is I have to give credit to to, to DJ as well. Um, he told me about the story about Cookie Ogren and his links to Heidi Fleiss and uh, the drug ring through him. And I had no idea who Cookie Ogren was, no, no idea. He was such an influential major figure in the drug trade in the United States, not just in New York, that uh, this was about three years ago. So my memory is short. And yeah, he told me about that story and I had no idea he had such a major influence. Yet the guy just dropped off the face of the earth. You never heard from him again. Um, and it just seems that way with all the Israeli nationals that were involved pre and post 9-11. The art student ring, never hear a name, don't know a picture, as you said. Moving front companies, urban moving systems. In fact, I heard one of the moving movers, actually, he got married on September 11th in 2002. So there's that to deal with. You don't know where these people are, where they went. It's just like almost like the Saudis, too. This is something I found through my years of reading and studying these, these two foreign intelligence rings, was that all of them were deported back to their home countries before the congressional inquiries and all at the same, uh, with the same infraction, overstaying their visas. 
All these people had expired visas. It was almost like yeah, we're going to we're going to get you out of the country on a crime, but the crime is not severe enough where the federal government is not going to use the Department of Justice, which is going to use the INS to move you out of the country. And so the FBI, I remember the FBI actually, when they were transporting the bin Laden family out of Massachusetts and Kentucky um, and all these Saudi royals, the FBI was basically saying, um, we still have more questions for these people, but they wanted to get them out of the country. And that came straight from the top, uh, George Bush and uh, the White House. In fact, there was an infamous picture. Um, you've probably seen it, Robbie, where Bandar bin Sultan is at like this uh, promenade with uh, Dick Cheney, George Bush, and somebody else, maybe Condoleezza Rice. And it was stated that they were talking about um, the upcoming response to the attacks and as well as getting the Saudis out of the country before they improperly vetted. And it just seems with the Israelis, there's a lot more questions and answers. Um, but my next question for you is somebody we both share in common, uh, a, a general dislike for this individual, um, even when he was the police commissioner here in New York. During his tenure as the interior minister of Iraq, which was appointed to him by Bush, but not Kerik, secretly accepted and failed to report a $250,000 interest-free loan from none other than Israeli billionaire Eitan Wertheimer in 2005, in which the contents of the loan was never made known. Nobody knows why he was given this loan. But just weeks prior to 9-11, Kerik incidentally makes a trip to Israel where he was with the police commission, when he was a police commissioner in New York, in the hopes of receiving some advice about the ecstasy drug ring and how to combat them in New York. Can you talk more about these issues? Well, you're teaching me something in real time, Adam. I didn't even, I didn't even hear that last part. I knew that he went to Israel, but I didn't know it was for that. So yeah. that's, pretty... that's why I saved that question for last. I figured <laughs> that for a second. Um, I'll talk about what I do know about Bernard Carrick because yeah, that I'll just let that one sit because that's that's crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> but Bernard Carrick is a really interesting figure because mm. just you just look at him and he scream. I mean, I'm I mean, maybe this is, you know, maybe this is going to I'm this going to show my coastal elitist attitude, but he screams mobster to me <laughs> like he just looks like he's a mobster. OK, yeah. and you have to understand, too, he was plugged into all of the Department of Corrections, you know, all across the East Coast. Everybody knew him. I mean, if he's not officially mobbed up, he essentially, in a way, can operate like a kind of a mob, you know, string puller. I mean, imagine the amount of criminal connections and informants and people that, you know, he knew just from his time in the NYPD and through the Department of Corrections. Um, and then the clout that he built up through 9-11, you know, being there, you know, by Rudy's side. But yeah, it's really weird that why did Bernard Carrick, what was it about Bernard Carrick that the Bush administration, that George W. Bush personally uh, wanted to nominate him for being the uh, head of Homeland Security? What was it about Carrick that was, that they loved so much that they wanted to reward him with that job? That's really strange to me. Um, and, but you know, I don't, th there, there was something about this Israeli bribe that he took from this businessman that like messed up his chances. I mean, he went to jail for that. 
didn't he? He went. He yes, actually he did. like. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So like that messed up his career in a way, but he actually, this is a weird thing. Is he stepped down? He had to be like, actually, I cannot accept this nomination because I hired an illegal immigrant to be my, uh, to like be my maid or mm. something, which seems kind of weird to me that like that would be enough that like that would be enough of a controversy to get someone like him knocked out of the running. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't think it would have actually hurt. I mean, I think he would have been fine. So it was weird that that kind of got aired out there as like a reason why he had to step down. And then uh, Tom Ridge, of course, gets it gets in the slot, but then he gets appointed by Rumsfeld. So he gets tapped by another Bush official who says, you know what? This guy, Bernard Carrick, he, he'd be perfect for serving under Paul Bremer, the head of, what's the company? I'm missing the name. Kroll Associates. Kroll, Kroll. <laughs> the head of Kroll Associates, who's already the governor, occupying Governor Iraq. You know, it'd be great to have Bernard Carrick be the vice governor of Iraq, and then also it'd be great to have him train the Iraqi police. So that's, for some reason, they hired Bernard Carrick to be that in Iraq. And, uh, you know, he takes credit for like keeping Iraq stable, you know, like he'll, he'll, he'll still take credit for that, that it's like after he basically had to leave and, and shut down his Iraqi police project is like when everything fell apart. And that's like why ISIS came to be, but he's a, such a strange character to me, Adam, because he actually like pushes what I guess you could call like kind of truthery conspiracies nowadays. And he's actually, I've seen people in the nine 11 truth movement, promoting bernard carrick recently and it's it's really interesting because it's like bernard carrick does promote stuff like january 6 was the false flag or mm. you know trump won the election the election was a fraud so these sort of like right wing conspiracies and then a lot of truthers have sort of gone down that tra trajectory where they're now like you know like i said earlier like sean stone is hanging out with rudy giuliani mm. and i've seen people that i you know used to respect promoting bernard carrick so i'm just like did people forget, you know, like what happened? Like, I mean, you don't have to think, be conspiratorial enough to think that Rudy Giuliani and Carrick had like a direct hand in 9-11. But I think this is one thing truthers, you know, Bat, you were saying, what are the things that they ignored or these theories that took away focus from an actual evidence trail? Well, all the talk about the 9-11 crime scene, Adam, you know, and the people who were so fixated on this idea of they thought the buildings were a controlled demolition, where's the actual like research body of research people have done on like who was there on the pile what companies were they where's the paperwork where's the paper trail for these companies that clean this up where did where did those companies take their rubble which rubble did they take it's like i'm realizing that actually looking at the like i was you know trying to put pieces together nobody like it's it, it's no it has simply has not been done which is kind of unfortunate so you know that's something that I still think people can look at now. And actually, if you're interested in, you know, looking at the World Trade Center site as a crime scene uh, and the evidence as, you know, being destroyed as a potential cover up, it's like, who did that? How much were they paid? Who was in charge of that? And, you know, exactly how did that play out? And I don't think we really have a clear picture of all that yet. So it's like people spent so much time trying to imagine how they thought, you know, if thermite was used or whatever, it's like, but what about the stuff we can actually prove? It's like we have, there's probably receipts, you know, of all these companies. And, and you know, after finding out recently that the Manafort brothers construction company was involved and that a company that cleaned up one of the anthrax sites in Florida was also involved in disposing of some of the stuff in the World Trade Center site. It's, 
I just think it needs to be looked at more closely. Cause I, I mean, I think even if you don't, whatever you think about the buildings or how they fell, I believe they covered things up um, in both crime scenes. Um, and I would like to know who those people were and uh, you know, see if they're connected to anyone else suspicious. <laughs> yeah, sure. And you know, this is one subject that I'm sorely lacking in is that, you know, when it comes to physics and I was never, I'm, I'm less than a layman when it comes to physics. And um, I have to apologize for that because this is one area I wish I knew a lot more than because it's such a focal point in the truth movement is about World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7. Whereas when I first started journeying down 9-11 was back in 2006. And one of the very first forums that I ever come across was the uh, JREF, the James Randi Educational Forum, where I saw people like Tony Zambotti and Stephen Jones, and they were talking about how the buildings could have fell. And I'm looking at this, and it's almost like reading Sanskrit. So I'm so intimidated by it. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what they're talking about. And so I went down the geopolitical route because I've already had an interest in true crime, you know, La Cosa Nostra, Jonestown, stuff like that. And so that took me to where I'm at right now. Um, the, the, the concept of, of like what took place at ground zero just hours after the buildings fell is interesting to me because one of the first things that was done was to get the debris to do the to do proper rescue and search search and rescue operations that debris was relocated to fresh kills landfill in staten island yeah one of the companies offered their services i want to say i i did a a story about this and it's in my it's in my wordpress where i put all documents and files and i forgot the name of the company but they offered their ford trucks to to transport the debris to fresh kills but they called Giuliani first. I think you're talking about, I'm pretty sure you're talking about Marcor remediation. I'm, I'm not sure it might, might not be, but that's the company that cleaned yeah. the site. And they, they actually on their website, they brag about being the first, at, first company to be used at fresh kills. Um, and it's just a weird thing that they got hired to clean up the anthrax building, you know, uh, in right. Florida. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, I think the buildings, you know, I, you know, I think they're weird, but I, I, again, I think that there's really, I don't see anything there right now in terms of a research project that I'm going to be able to do anything on. I think that actually, you know, looking at now that I've known all this stuff about Giuliani and the anthrax, I think that it really, really would be valuable to, you know, see what was actually this deal that was done with Bayo Steel, this Chinese company that apparently recycled all the steel. Mm -hmm. um, how did that take place? So did, did, was Rudy put in charge of that? And if so, why? Like, why was he, how was he the one given the authority to do that? All the, I think all these questions have not been answered because when you really go back and look, it's like somehow Rudy was able to like boss around FEMA. It's like, how? Mm. I thought FEMA was federal agency why you know after an emergency like why was rudy allowed to do that um and i you know and and given the fact that the west nile virus outbreak uh happened under him and he you know has this sort of heroic you know coming in to save the day with that and and he procured the contract for the company to remediate that you know it's he has an odd history with let's just say bio events and terrorism and uh, and then you also mentioned that you had an interest in La Cosa Nostra. I mean, I kind of 
went there inadvertently recently researching the Inquirer because I didn't realize that it actually was a, a newspaper that was purchased on a mob loan uh, from Frank Costello um, to Gene, um, what's his name? Uh, Ponderosa. I forgot how to pronounce his last name. You know what I'm talking about? Gene Pope, the guy who, the guy who founded the Inquirer. Oh um, no, I don't, I don't know his name. His father was the guy who started, I guess, who ran the most popular Italian language newspaper in New York. And he was sort of in with the mob. And when his dad died, um, his son basically bought like a horse racing newspaper called the Inquirer, and he turned it into a gore tabloid with like police crime scene photos that were leaked by cops that were probably, you know, already connected through the mob by, via his father. So it's the whole thing is an interesting history where it's like you have this, you know, it's, you know, military industrial complex mainstream media apparatus that already exists, but then you have sort of this coming off to the side in the late 60s and 70s, this mob, you know, money purchased kind of tabloid that's sort of uh, carving its own, you know, path and is actually breaking real stories and is doing things that like no, you know, real journalists would would ethically feel comfortable doing, you know, and um, and the CEO who later bought American Media Inc. and, and the, all those tabloids, David Pecker, uh, is in really tight with um, Rudy Giuliani and Trump. And it's so fascinating because some of the the new stuff that um, Gumby for Christ and I have been researching together for this new podcast is it, it appears that, that David Pecker, his building gets attacked with the anthrax. It basically becomes a money pit, or I don't know what word you would describe something that's like a property that's just like losing money. Like, you know, this $5 million building, it's contaminated. He claims he, you know, he couldn't sell it. Well, he sells it to some random land developer guy in Florida named David Rustine. Now, you might think, okay, maybe he was just didn't want to, maybe AMI, American Media Inc., didn't want to pay the money to clean the anthrax in the building and they just want to get rid of it. Well, they sold the building for $40,000. Okay. You know, that's that sounds kind of suspicious, right? To sell a $5 million building, even if it has contaminated anthrax for $40,000. Um, well, uh, what's strange is David Rustine, this Flor Florida Hollywood real estate, um, it's not, not Hollywood, just Florida Palm Beach area real estate guy, he has all these properties oddly located near 9-11 hijackers. And I started finding all these on the map. And his wife lives really close to some art students. And David Rustine has a building literally next door to a Richard Pearl publicly listed address. So just, the, you know, these strange connections started popping up. So I'm looking at this $40,000 deal and thinking, this is, this seems like something that they should have audited. It seems really suspicious. Why, why didn't, why couldn't AMI hire a company to clean the anthrax like David Rustine ended up doing? David Rustine ended up hiring Rudy Giuliani's company bio one to clean up the building. He ended up firing Rudy Giuliani's company and hiring Marcor remediation. The first company that was on fresh kills disposing of uh, world trade center stuff. Now, apparently David Rustine is family members with the people who started Marcor remediation, which is just sort of an odd thing is the guy who buys the building contaminated anthrax is family with Marcur remediation. So you're kind of wondering, is this guy involved? What's, what is this? Is it a dummy buyer perhaps? I mean, it seems like 
David Ristine actually got two dummy buyers, which it sounds ludicrous, but Gumby for Christ ended up finding recently that the guy who buys the building from David Ristine, after David Ristine cleans it up from anthrax, he buys it for something like $7 million. So he makes an extraordinary profit off of this building. That buyer lives like two houses down from David Pecker, the guy who originally sells the building David Racine. So it's just a weird, it's like, it was this just like a dummy trade-off of this building and what the hell happened here? And why is this so shady? And is David Pecker and AMI, were they involved in this somehow? I mean, it, I, I, it, it raises a lot of questions, I think. Um, but I forgot to mention one thing is that uh, David Pecker, after he sells the building to Ristine, or sorry, before he sells the building to Ristine, it's not just the building that he's selling to Ristine. For some reason, David Pecker and AMI sell the entire building's contents to Ristine, which includes uh, basically millions of dollars of exclusive photo archives and archives of the National Enquirer and all of their tabloids going back like decades. And you just have to wonder why would they, why would he have done that? Why? And it's, it's strange too, because in the contract, it says that when you're purchasing this building, you could come back into it and, and retrieve items. If you'd like with a EPA approval, you have to be hazmatted up when you come in hmm. and get them and you have to go through us to get them. But the whole contract in the purchase basically says that, these you're selling us all the contents and we basically can destroy them whenever we want. Like it's, there's nothing saying like you have this much amount of time to come back and get the contents. You can get these contents. It's basically saying we could destroy the contents whenever we want. And essentially that's what it seemed like the deal was intended to do. We're selling you this building at an extreme loss. It's very suspiciously slow. And then we're also just letting you destroy the entire building's contents. Why, why would they do that? And this only became to light in the news because Rudy Giuliani's company ended up being sued by a photographer who wanted his photographs back. And in the lawsuit, it came up that they were basically did destroy all the content. So David Ristine apparently wasn't even interested in saving all these contents. And it's just, a, it's a really strange story, Adam. I know I'm, I'm totally going off on a random tangent, but this is where the new media roots anthrax, um, research is going and it's sort of trying to figure out you know what what was this whole ami thing really about like what was it um was the letter that they say robert stevens breathed in was that a hoax letter because why does the fbi not even use any story about that letter in their report do they why don't they believe any of the witnesses at the inquire and there's also a totally different side of this that I think is interesting to go back and look at is other journalists for like New York times and Washington post. They have what I can only describe as utter disdain for the people at the Inquirer. Mm. Like they, you know, they're talking about it like it's a tragic event, but they also, you know, are basically think these people are trash. Like they, the disdain that like regular DC beltway reporters had for these, you know, Inquirer tabloid people is very strong. And you have to wonder if that played into some of what happened. If like, that's why we got the coverage we did. And then also, I just read this random thing today that apparently the FBI hypnotized the AMI witnesses to have them tell the story about how they saw Robert Stevens inhaling the letter. And 
I don't know. You you say you're into true crime, Adam. Is that something that the FBI does to witnesses? I, I've never heard that before. So I would read that thinking, is some is there someone on the FBI who was trying to blow this from the very beginning? Like, because that just seems like a stupid thing to do. So I, I'm anyways, uh, that's going to be the new podcast <laughs> about well, the end. Yeah, I was going to ask you um, before to let you go. Uh, sure. what, what projects are you working on right now currently? Well, that's, I mean, that's probably the main one that I'm doing is I'm trying to piece together the whole AMI, American Media Inc. Um, building, cleanup. And also I'm starting, I'm just at the beginning of starting a larger research project on the entire um, World Trade Center building site cleanup. Because I, what I, my, my theory here is that there are companies here that somehow Rudy Giuliani was connected to or people he was friends with were connected to who are already suspicious people. And I, I just want to see how much of that more there is um, and to see where that goes, because I just think the, yeah, the Rudy angle of this, I think has been largely ignored. I mean, I noticed there was Barbara Honecker. I think her name is, do you know how to pronounce her last name? Barbara Honecker. Barbara Honecker. I mean, I know, a lot of people have problems with her Pentagon research. Like I don't, you know, I, I don't agree with her Pentagon research, but I saw she was going out there talking about tripod two, which was Rudy's, um, the drill that he had planned. That was an anthrax bioterror drill on nine twelve, which one, probably one of the craziest truther statements ever that turned out to be true to me was this idea that FEMA was there the night before and they had already brought a lot of equipment there the night before i thought that that was a, a just a total, total truther fart like it wasn't real <laughs> but no it's it's real like that and that was from tripe that because of tripod too um which is sort of weird you know to think that rudy uh was doing was running that drill with fema um you know av- on 912 and and in actuality the emergency command center that was supposed to be a World Trade Center 7 on the day of 9-11 ended up being moved to a pier somewhere else in Manhattan that was supposed to be the site of Tripod 2. They basically just moved their, their you know, surrogate emergency command center set up to where the Tripod 2 was supposed to be. So, you know, maybe they had a lot of more equipment already set up there that we don't know about. I don't know. It just, I mean, you can get into some really weird territories and that's like, you know, like we, we always talk about it's you could speculate all day long you know and there's so many but but yeah i'm working on more anthrax podcasts but i am going to try to find more stuff and and do more podcasts about um the the world trade center uh, cleanup i think maybe sure. next year anniversary. sure let me ask you robbie um with all the work that you've done past and currently and the present what are your hopes in achieving in doing all this? <laughs> um, I think to have a very small amount of incremental, um, if I could move the needle even just a tiny bit, I would be satisfied that I've, that I've made some contribution, I think. Um, like I was even realizing few days ago like if i could just get like a florida local reporter to be like these st petersburg letters are this is like a news story that i want to cover like this is like low this is like important local news like that would be a big deal to me um 
And I think that that would, you know, create an opening, even if it's a really tiny one, uh, because I look at almost like an investment, you know, even if no one cares, you know, there'd be a lot of like people at home watching a local news story or reading the newspaper who never even heard of this before. And so I think if you can reorient people, you know, cause the FBI obviously erased this. Um, and I guess I'm hopeful that if you could lay out things with facts and make things easy to understand for people that there's, there's a way to, you know, move this, move this somehow. And whether that means, you know, maybe the most hopeful outcome that I sometimes fantasize about is someone else coming out from the FBI, blowing the whistle, you know, 20 years later and being like, yeah, everybody knew this was bullshit. Like we had, basically we were tasked with covering this up because you know that everybody in the FBI knows this is bullshit. I mean, even if some of them, like I was saying earlier, think Ivan's has some link to the crime. Anybody who knows about those St. Petersburg letters in the FBI knows there couldn't have been one person. So it's just, I'm hopeful that there's people in on the inside who are not total pieces of shit who want to tell the truth about this. And maybe they just haven't found the courage to do so yet. So maybe that's, you know, that's something that I, that's the most hopeful that I get, I guess. Robbie Martin, 9-11 filmmaker, producer, activist. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Adam.